0: I'm going to start off today's video by saying that there's something close to a four-hour director's making of commentary, which is on the director's cut of the game, which I have, and I actually watched a decent amount of, not all of it. And I highly recommend if you really want to see more of the the behind-the-scenes making of stuff, you go ahead and watch it yourself. Uh, It's pretty interesting, if you're into that sort of thing, of course. If you're not, then, well, I mean, that's understandable. Not everyone is going to be interested in how things are made. But I just mention that because one of the things I usually try to do with most of my ruminations in general is have a little bit of a behind-the-scenes thing. I do that with the television stuff, too. And there's not really a huge amount of information on this other than then that commentary. And I decided I'd rather not just go ahead and basically end up quoting it word for word. I do want to talk about a couple of things. So I mentioned in the previous week, just last week, about how uh, Deus Ex was inspired by many things, so this one actually has the exact same thing. Two things in particular really helped push forward the ideas of how they presented things in this one. First is the movie RoboCop, and I want to take a quick segue here for a moment, because some people look at that and they think, oh, RoboCop, whatever, right? RoboCop actually has a little more depth to it and a little more complexity in the way it approaches its storytelling than you'd think at first glance. It looks like a silly, stupid action movie, but the self-parody nature of it, the way it tries to analyze certain aspects of the way society had been going at the time, and some some people would argue are still going, the nature of how people interact with each other, the deep human elements, blah, blah, blah. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out the excessive symbolism, but point remains that it's an interesting film that can actually inspire one to think more than you'd actually consider for a movie called RoboCop, especially given uh, how the making of RoboCop actually came into being. But I don't want to talk about that here. So RoboCop was a big uh, indicator of this, uh, most notably and most obviously in the character of uh, Jensen himself, Adam Jensen himself. The other big uh, uh, inspiration that's usually listed when it comes to the makers of this one is Ghost in the Shell. Uh, the anime-slash-manga of of the said name that is actually pretty good. And yes, that's me saying that. And some obvious connotations there, which I'm not going to get into. Trying to analyze what it would be like in a more mundane, everyday feel to have things like augmentations, for example. Now, this... They tried to make Deus Ex 3... Multiple times, Uh, in fact, there were three significant efforts that got started and then failed before they actually settled on this one, Human Revolution, which came out uh, somewhere along the line of ten years, I want to say, give or take. Uh, I I guess that depends on how you're defining it, you know, if you're defining it at creation date or if you're defining it at release date. But either way, about a decade happened between Deus Ex and this one. And I know what you're thinking, why aren't you bringing up Invisible War? Um... I've said before that when it comes to making a sequel for anything, for a television show, for a movie, for a book, for a game, doesn't matter. When you're trying to make a sequel to something, usually one of two things happens. Either you take all that money that you made and all the experience you now have, and now you can make something for real, because you were learning in the first film or in the first book or in the first game. But now you have learned, and now you can practice your craft. Now you can uh, master instead of beginner, you know? Instead of... uh, And so, you either see things get much, much better in a sequel, or you see things get much, much worse. And there's a lot of reasons for the much, much worse thing. Uh, Fatigue, uh, lack of new ideas, you know, stagnation in the creative team, that kind of a thing. It is my opinion that Invisible War sits in the latter category, that Invisible War in no way lived up to the... uh, Impact of the first Deus Ex, and I don't just mean in the, in the in the sense of how significant Deus Ex was with regards to gaming as a as a medium and to the the history of video gaming. What I mean by that is that it just kind of wasn't as good of a game, regardless of all significance, regardless of all other external factors. So. Uh, I don't want to deride Invisible War. It was not a terrible game. But I usually don't refer to it when it comes to the other games. Especially when it comes to Ruminations. Especially since, ultimately, it barely matters to do so. I actually thought about that this time. I was like, well, maybe I should go ahead and go through Invisible War as well. Just like a quick playthrough, rather than a full in-depth analysis playthrough while I'm going through this. And I kind of decided not to, because I did some research and looking into it and refreshed myself and so on someone. I was like, oh yeah, it basically doesn't matter to the story of the other two. <laughs> Which is funny, uh, for reasons that we won't go into, but that's why I don't really refer to Invisible War, in case anyone's wondering. So then we leave ourselves with Deus Ex 3, Human Revolution, which is of course a prologue, which is a fairly bold uh, decision to make, especially in a series where choices matter and all that fun stuff. Now again, that actually makes sense though, given what I mentioned last time about the whole way that choices matter is really just you know the dog on the leash, right? You know, we do change events during the course of these games, but no matter what we actually choose, the overall path still stays the same. Nowhere is this more apparent than in Invisible War, actually, where whichever of the three potential endings you chose at the end, I hope you remembered that, by the way, from last time. I didn't forget. I was going to mention it today. Um, but whichever of the three possible endings you picked, basically all three of them happened in one form or another. And well, Lord knows that I've seen Bethesda pull that off in a previous game, I'm not really sure it really pulled it off as well as Invisible War. But again, I don't want to bash Invisible War. But the reason I bring it up is they kind of do the same thing here. They kind of have a thing, uh, and uh, forgive me for spoiling, but the next game that's coming out just this August, by the way, so it's about, what, two months off now? Um, in just about two months here, we're going to have to have another game where the effects of the decisions you make at the end of this game, Human Revolution, don't really matter. You know, it's, it's another one of those all-in-one all, all, all in one kind of a deals. And I want to talk a little bit about that, because on the one hand, that's kind of lazy. It's just derisive, or dismissive is actually a better word, dismissive. Because at that point, it's saying, you know, you have this big choice of which, which ideology to choose, which ideology to push forward. And I'll talk more about that later when I actually get to it. But it doesn't matter which one you pick, because we're just going ahead with the story, regardless of you. On the one hand that is kind of keeping with the overall theme of these games you know the fact that the individual doesn't really matter and the whole transhumanism thing and the idea that your choices matter even though they don't affect the path right so that kind of fits but it does feel kind of it still just has a little bit of a sting to it it's like if you it's it's like someone slapping you you know It, it still hurts even if you had it coming right um so I'm not sure if I could consider that a positive or negative. I suppose I'll have to actually go through *Mankind Divided* to get there. Now it's interesting because *Mankind Divided* in many, many ways actually reminds me of the X-Men plot. You know, the X-Men plot. So there is only one X-Men plot anyway. Mutants are being, you know, segregated against and pre- uh, persecuted, and then there's the other people. There's the mutants and the Muggles, right? The X-Men plot. Um, it is worth noting though that I find those kind of plots fascinating. So at the very least, I'm at least interested in seeing what's going to happen with it. Moving on, moving on. Uh, there was one other thing they did very interesting. I just want to give a brief aside here when it comes to human revolution. Some people asked why it took so damn long to make. And I mentioned, you know, there were three failed attempts. One of the things they did, and it's debatable if this was a good idea or not, was they decided to go ahead and do effectively the same Matrix style of, not the movie, again, <laughs> Matrix style uh, management approach. In other words, a bunch of small teams who had a bunch of different people with different uh, skill sets in them, and each one was handed basically a degree of projects to work on. Say, so here, go do this, you go do this, you go do this. And then they, they had you know all this stuff was combined together into one more cohesive whole at the end of it. Which uh, is, is, is a very uh, controversial management style, because on the one hand, if everyone is properly motivated and the team involved in getting everything together does a really good job, You'll generally get better work from that, because your your focus is tighter. You're really thinking about, I want this, and I want to make this as good as possible, rather than stretching yourself too thin, or getting too stressed, or you know working too many hours, or whatever. Uh, the, de- the biggest and most obvious detriment to this style of development is it takes much longer, and, and by natural consequences, therefore, more expensive. And that was a bit of an issue they were having with this game. It's a good thing, I think, personally, that Human Revolution was so financially successful, because it almost wasn't. <laughs> Uh, you know, it would have been very easy for this game to, to bomb. In fact, I don't know how many of you remember this uh, since this game is sort of old at this point, but when this game was coming out, a lot of the fans of the DSX series spit all over it. Because, and for reasons I'll talk about when we get more to the gameplay section, I don't want to deride anyone's opinion. Though, if you dislike this game, if you prefer Deus Ex to this one, that's fine. I mean, I've had the same kind of arguments with people who prefer the original XCOM to the new Enemy Unknown stuff. I've had the same kind of arguments with people who prefer the old Starcraft to the new Starcraft. You know, I could name other examples, but I, this is a commonality. This is nothing new, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with preferring Fallout One to Fallout Three. There's nothing wrong with prefer or excuse me, excuse me. There's nothing wrong with preferring Fallout One to Fallout New Vegas. There's nothing wrong with preferring Fallout New Vegas. Fallout 1. The, the, the openness and ability for personal preference and choice is probably one of the few true freedoms we actually enjoy here in, in modern society, and therefore I am totally in favor of that. Uh, which is funny, for reasons that we'll discuss when we get to the thematic stuff. Let's talk about the gameplay. Let's talk about the gameplay of this game. So first of all, I just want to say, uh, personally, I actually enjoyed the actual function of playing the game better than I did the original Deus Ex. That being said, I have to say that the gameplay was... And I hate using this term. Dumbed down from the original Deus Ex. But I don't want to just give that term and not explain it. Let me talk a little bit about this. So they have this philosophy of combat, sleuthing, uh, hacking, and social. Okay. Now, if you'll remember, one of the biggest strengths, I'd say one of the two biggest strengths of the original Deus Ex's gameplay was the fact that you could specialize in all these different things, and I gave a list, and you could do whatever. You could hyper-specialize and still make it work. The game was designed such that there was some way to use, you know, your violinist skill in order to be able to actually go through and accomplish the thing. That was something they did very well in the original Deus Ex. In this one, they don't really get that across anywhere near as correctly. Um, There are simply too many circumstances where you need combat. There's simply too many circumstances where you need to be able to hack or something like that. Um, Now, it's not too bad, but it does mean hyper-specialization isn't a thing. And on the one hand, you might be like, well, why is that a bad thing? You know, I myself have spoken against hyper-specialization in gameplay design many times. The reason I bring it up here is it does take some of the choice away from the player. It says, yeah, you can be a super-stealth or socializer, but you better have some combat ogs on top of that, you know, because you're still going to have to be able to fight the bosses if absolutely nothing else, for example. And that's okay. I am okay with that. But there's no denying that that is a light version of the original Deus Ex. And that's, that's the way I want to actually say that. It's not that it's dumbed down. It is Deus Ex light, L-I-T-E, as in a slightly more uh, less-intense version. Of the original, if that makes sense. And I feel like that's part of why, initially, when I first picked up this game you know, years ago and, and actually went through it, I actually put it down. didn't, didn't actually finish it. My first time playing this. Uh, obviously, I did now, but back when I used to play it. didn't actually finish the whole game. I was just kind of like, eh. And then when I picked it up again and really gave it a second try, I was like, okay, this is... I'm with this. And I want to explain why that is. Because one of the really other big things that really made the original Deus Ex shine was that your choices matter thing that I talked about. The fact that you could do so many different things in order to affect the, the route as you're following this linear path through the story was awesome. And I loved that. And I wanted more of that in this one, and I felt like it was more lacking when it came to that style of gameplay. But the truth was, while it was more lacking in that, you don't have nearly as many choices and options and nearly as many ways you can affect the the course of the plot. They did still plan for quite a few of those choices. You do still have the flavor of choice throughout this thing. You do still have the flavor of your choices matter, and you do still have the flavor of being able to choose your own gameplay style with limitations in both cases. Again, which is why I call the gameplay a version of the original Deus Ex Light. Because we get less choice in gameplay and we get less choice in dialogue choices. Make sense? That being said, you might be like, well, hang on. You're just saying it's, it's an overall negative. Why are you still better? Why are you more, more positively inclined towards that? This playthrough that I just did for this one, I actually enjoyed a lot more than I thought it. I'm actually much more pumped for Mankind Divided than I actually was before as a result of going through this playthrough because I really enjoyed it. And I know what you're thinking. Why? It's better presented, in my opinion. They did a little bit more polish in several aspects of this one. One of my biggest complaints about the original Deus Ex was that the writing was kind of lackluster and that the voice acting was terrible. Now, that's both fixed here. The uh, Even the voice actor for Adam Jensen, who is still doing the same, you know, dirty, hairy, hushed, macho whisper kind of a thing, is nevertheless a step up from the total monotone thing that the original JC was doing. And but so the voice acting was better, the fluid fluidity of the animation was better. Obviously the graphics are better, but that's not, you know, that's not really saying anything. But I felt that the combat itself flowed a little bit smoother and was a little bit was a little bit more fps but I felt that it was to the benefit of it. I felt like they, they looked at that and said, well, we can try for the original uh, third-person shooter style and go with that. Or they could go with the first-person shooter and actually embrace that and try to do the best they could with that. And there's a couple of third-person shooter aspects to it, mostly in the special moves and whatnot. But I feel that that first-person emphasis helped the game overall, helped to make it better presented, helped to make it... It felt more polished. It felt like they were putting more effort into what they did do, even if the meat of what they were presenting was less make sense so i was much more positively inclined than i always thought i would um It is worth noting as well that everything about this Deus Ex is a logical byproduct of the difference in the gaming industry at the point it was coming out. What what were games like in the late 90s and early 2000s? you You could look at Deus Ex, the original, and just say, yeah, that's a slice of gaming in that history, especially PC gaming. You could look at Deus Ex Human Revolution and say, well, that's a slice of PC gaming here too. A lot of the same basic concepts in terms of presentation style and gaming philosophy all adhere to the era they came out in. And I'm not saying that to, to you know, be positive or negative. I'm not saying that to accuse or defend. I'm just pointing it out. Now, there's one other thing, though, that I feel DSX Human Revolution did much better than the original. The story. Remember how I mentioned that the story was kind of one of the bigger negatives for the original? The fact that it was this, this big cliché that, while it was still enjoyable because it embraced that cliché nature, never really made me think. It felt like they had the edges, the, the outermost grasps of some really interesting, thought-provoking discussion. I never actually did anything with it. I'm going to bring this up now, because I, I, I hope some of you picked up on the fact that I brought up the three philosophies in my last video, and I didn't really discuss it. I did that on purpose. Because I wanted to discuss that here, because the three philosophies are actually better presented in this game than they were in the last one, which is kind of my point. They do more with it, is what I'm trying to say. In the last game, the three philosophies only really came up right at the he- right at the end, right at the head, when you're in the Area 51 facility and you have the big discussion with Tong, you have the big discussion with Icar- or Helios, and you have the big discussion with uh, Everett. And the three of them kind of get across their philosophy to you in, in one big dump. And it was well written, but it was just like this one sudden nugget at the end, you know? And in this game, it's much more of a woven throughout the narrative. You get the three perspectives. So let's talk about those three perspectives. Uh, first of all, there's, uh, the re- there's the restriction. I'll just go ahead and lay out how I want to talk about this. There's the restriction, there's the, uh, there's the freedom, and then there's the control. okay. So the restriction is the idea to prevent entirely the idea of disallowing something from happening and, and restraining things. I'll be talking more about this in a moment when we talk about the Icarus concept, and the Icarus effect, excuse me, and the idea of mankind needs guidance, and certain things are simply not allowed. Certain things simply should not be, and it is in mankind's best interest, as a species, as a whole, to disallow them from even having those things happen. Preventative maintenance, if you will. And so it's a form of control, but it's not absolute control. This is probably the the thing that was best presented by uh, the Illuminati back in... The original Deus Ex by by Everett, his philosophy is best present, is the one that best adheres to this thing, the idea of a guiding hand over everything. I mean, what's the what's the Ooh. Illuminati's, uh, or I guess that's actually Majestic Twelve's um, iconography, you know, the hand over the world thing. But the, the point being, you know, that that guiding hand over humanity, saying, well, we know what's best. We're going to try and make sure that you know it's best too. And that really is all over the place in this one, again, most notably with the Icarus effect and uh, several other things like the like, well. I'll talk about that in a moment okay just so I'm just presenting the ideas first of all. The second one is the freedom one again, this is tongs back from Reginald Ex. the idea that humankind should basically be allowed to progress normally, that the chaotic interactions between people and social structures and money and politics and military and resources and natural disasters and all the many 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 thousands upon millions upon trillions of different uh, variables that affect something should all just be allowed to take their natural course, and to see mathematically what maths out to be the the most likely b- b- uh, outcome, whether it be beneficial or not, is not relevant. And one of the things that's actually mentioned about that, and Tong himself, kind of mentions this, is the idea that that is what is right, the idea that that kind of natural chaos is how things should be. So we've got the total restriction and the tyranny thereof, and we've got the, uh, the total freedom. The third thing is actually total control. This is the one represented, of course, by Bob Page. Um, the idea of, well, as opposed to the Illuminati, which wanted to be a guiding hand and to prevent humanity from going too far, uh, this is a total absolute control scenario. I keep control over everyone and everything all at the same time, and I am the guiding hand of all humanity. I reminded a little bit of the plot from the recent X-Men movie and in Sabah overall goal with regards to why he was trying to take the powers of Xavier... Because that that, and then I gotta admit, of the three, that's the most terrifying to me personally. I mean, it's just the way I think, the way I feel. But the idea of one individual totally and absolutely controlling everything simultaneously to the point where they're, I mean, think about what that would happen for, for just a moment. You know, one of the most commonalities things I talk about many times with Kurt, as, as, as a writer is I like to bounce ideas off of people, right? Because one person in a vacuum will always reach a creative stagnation point. You can only be so creative. One person on their own in a vacuum can only be so creative. I've often said back in Mass Effect 3, one of the biggest mistakes the lead writers made when they went went into a locked door in order to write the ending for Mass Effect 3 was the locked door part. The fact that they went over there and they didn't get feedback and they didn't get creative consultation and they didn't get buy-in. And you should. That's how we grow. That's how we progress. How do we learn when we're children? Is it because we're sitting there in a room listening to some person talk from a book? Or is it when we're out on the playground and we're actually interacting with other people and the way we interact with them affects them so they interact with us differently, which allows us to interact with them differently. And that's how children grow. That's how we learn as a people, as a species. So the idea of that kind of absolute stagnation is kind of terrifying to me, you know? So this is the three general ideas, and if you're paying attention, all three of these have negatives, pretty significant negatives, actually. The idea of, you know, restricting humanity artificially, preventing them from being able to do leaps forward or trying to artificially guide and restrict progress. The idea of just letting whatever happen. I mean, it's, it, it'll just work itself out, right? It's good. And of course, the last idea, which as I've already presented, I find the most horrifying, the idea of this is mine and no one else's, you know. That kind of a thing. Uh, <laughs> Takes some serious megalomania to actually think that you must be in control of all things all the time, forever. It's, you know? All three of these have flaws. All three of these ideas are wrong. And I think that's one of the things I find most interesting about the Deus Ex series. is because both Deus, both Deus Ex and Human Revolution very clearly have these three philosophies pervasive, basically, throughout. Especially in, in, in the background comics, if you've ever read them. You know what I mean. Uh, and the idea that all three of these ideas are wrong. None of them are actually the correct solution. And I like that. Um... So let's talk a little bit more about some of the ways this is presented in the game. And then, I'll, and then I want to talk about my big thing last. I've got one big topic for today. So the Illuminati, right? The Illuminati actually gets a little bit more screen time. It's actually development within this game than they do uh, over in the original Deus Ex. I, that, that's logical, though. In Deus Ex, the Illuminati was not actually the bad guys, per se. That was Majestic 12 and Bob Page. I still love that the main villain's called Bob. Um, in this one, though the Illuminati is far more in control. Now, one of the interesting things I find is the concept of the Icarus effect. The Icarus effect is an artificial form of crab philosophy. Now, for those of you who have not heard me talk about this, I know I've only discussed this a few times on my stream, crab philosophy is the idea of, if you got a bunch of crabs, okay, and you capture them, uh, you don't really need, depending on the crab type, you don't really need to put a roof on the cage that you're keeping them in you might be like well that's stupid how do you prevent them from escaping well the crabs prevent them from escaping anytime a crab tries to crawl out the other crabs helpfully drag it right back down into the rest of the pack that's crab philosophy except think of it socially think of it structurally think of it personally think of it in terms of societal norms think of it in terms of civilization human beings do this all the time crab philosophy you know, nope, nope. stop being an outlier start to get back here And the funny thing is, what conformity actually is changes so fluidly that it it doesn't really matter. Because there is no such thing as an absolute normalcy, of course, amongst human society. So, you know, if we rewind time two years or go two years into the future, what is considered the, the, the place where everyone else should be, the cage, if you will, will be different and different people will be like, uh, down here, and, and conform to this thing. Now, I don't want to sound alarmist about this, but crab philosophy has very real applications in real life. And crab philosophy, of course, is a natural byproduct, you know, people's inclination to try and bring other people into line with what they are, okay? I do it, too. I'll freely admit it. You know, I try to be very tolerant and understanding, and I, I encourage certain types of thought, and I, so I am also trying to adhere other people to myself. Uh, the only difference I feel, at least personally, is that I'm A, self-aware of this fact, and B, I try to also adhere myself to other people's thoughts as well, to try and have that melding, that merging, that mutual respect, the very thing that made the Mass Effect is great. You, you're probably thinking, why do you keep referencing Mass Effect? I've been doing a lot of research into Andromeda lately, so it's kind of on my mind. Forgive me. Moving on. The Icarus effect, then, is the artificial version of crab philosophy. In other words, the Illuminati will actually go out of their way and say, well, that person is excelling too much. Now, this is interesting, because the Iscras effect is primarily focused on things where people are accomplishing too much. You know, to use an example, Leonardo da Vinci would probably have been assassinated by the Illuminati because he was simply uh, going too far beyond the, the norm of what was acceptable at the time. Now, this is the interesting thing. The Illuminati presents this as if this is for mankind's benefit. The idea that if any given individual or groups is allowed to excel too quickly or too violently or too rapidly, society will simply collapse as a natural resultant. I'm going to ignore the obvious flaw in that argument. I'm sure you can come up with it just fine on your own. But the reason I bring that up, though, is I don't think that's the real motivation. Because they constantly talk about how they must keep things in control. If people are allowed to get too far too quickly, well, then then we're just going to have this massive destabilization, and we need to keep things nice and settled, nice and easier to administrate. In other words, it is my opinion, although this is up to you, the viewer, to decide this, that the Illuminati does not want to keep humanity more under control, or more in control, I should say. They don't want to keep humanity more in control. They want to keep it under their control. That being able to prevent humanity from progressing too far and too rapidly in a given field enables them to more easily exert their own influence. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the whole augmentation thing to begin with. Which brings me to an interesting uh, point. Um, I, I want to discuss it more when I get to my final point, but all I'm going to say is the fact that the augmentation thing just kind of exploded naturally. And it's made clear that that's what happened. No one pushed it. You know, there was no... The Illuminati didn't conspire to do this. There was no ancient government or any of the various conspiracy groups tried to make augmentation thing. It just kind of exploded naturally, innately, chaotically, as things do. That's how human technology has always exploded. How did the Internet become a thing? You know? How did vehicles become a thing? Something happened and then... <clears throat> I'll talk more about that later, though. So the And I love the, the, the connotations of calling it the Icarus effect. We want to make sure no one flies too close to the sun. But by parallel, what this means is that the Illuminati themselves are the ones melting the wax. And again, what possible motivation would they have for that, other than their own uh, self-aggrandizement? Next thing I want to talk about is the Hiron Project. A lot of the one I'm going to talk about has to do with the Illuminati. Like I said, they take much more of a central focus on this one than they did in previous ones, which I like, actually. Um, so the Illuminati uh, has done this thing called the Hyron Project. For those of you who are unfortunate enough, or I should say fortunate enough, to have not actually been exposed to the Hyron Project, the Hyron Project is an extremely inhuman practice of trying to graft human beings into computers it's a it's it's the very beginning crude beginnings of what would eventually become uh what bob page himself wanted to do with the helios AI, uh, human and com- computational merger to create a basically a better machine. These things are actually described as being quantum computers uh, due to the nature of the fact that they are, are slaved to a human brain and therefore are capable of both being faster from the, from the computational side and being more dynamic from the human side in order to uh, basically make the perfect computer. Now, I know what you're thinking, why is this horrible? <clears throat> so for some reason only women are accepted for the project. I'm not sure why. I couldn't find anything anywhere in lore or out as to why they did that. It is my personal belief that they chose women specifically to make it more horrifying when you hear them screaming or crying in agony as they're dissecting these people and and they're just subjected to horrifying illusions. I want you to imagine for a moment that your eyes don't work and you can't move and you're getting an untold amount of information from a computer that's being downloaded basically directly into your brain and you're still conscious and aware of this Except you can't see or feel or think, in the traditional sense you've just got all this this alien data that's being pulled out directly into your brain, that alone sounds horrifying to me. There's also the fact that they have a ridiculously high fatality rate just in starting the project. you know, just hooking you up to the machine has an extremely high chance to kill you <laughs> because what they're doing is they're surgically replacing people's spines. With augmented spines, the mechanical augmented spines, and those spines are then designed to be plugged into the actual Hieron computers. Um, and because of the nature of how augments work in this particular era, uh, thanks to the Darrow deficiency syndrome, which I'll talk about in a second, their maximum life expectancy, if they are successful, is one year before it simply gets too much and their body rejects their spine. They have one of these things running several of the Illuminati's projects, and and it's funny because you might think, well, that sounds pretty horrible, and it sounds, uh, even from an evil overlord's perspective, that sounds, like, ridiculously costly and expensive. I mean, how could they possibly get that many people? I mean, they would have to go into slaving and kidnapping to... Oh, right, they, sl- they enslave and kidnap people. Forgot about that. Um... <laughs> But the main reason they push for it so much is so many of the Illuminati's projects require what is effectively a quantum computer. They are simply too advanced and too uh, difficult for a normal computer to handle the sheer amount of information and requirements necessary that they need these super advanced computers in order to do the, the space station project, the moon base project, the, uh, the global environmental changing project, you know, that kind of stuff. They require it. And it is very likely, based on what we learned, that these are basically the prototypes for what eventually become the AIs of the original Deus Ex. Now, so it's worth the cost, basically. The huge cost in time and resources, and, of course, human lives. Although I sincerely doubt the people involved actually gave a damn about the thousands upon thousands of people that they were surgically killing, whether successful or not. So uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah, the last boss is basically up against a Hyron uh, project byproduct. If you ever wondered what the hell was up with the thing at the end, there's your answer. Uh, d- let's talk a little bit about Darrow Deficiency Syndrome because uh, so what that is is a very logical thing. Very. I applaud the game for actually having this, because it's very logical that if you add what are effectively mechanical augments, your human body, which is basically programmed to uh, present all foreign objects as some kind of contaminant or illness or disease or whatever, it rejects them over time. There's actually only one person who actually has the secret to perfect augmentation in his random genetic material, his genes basically being just the right perfect uh, by, uh, example so that he would actually have a stronger connection to augments rather than a weaker one. That is, of course, the main character, Adam Jensen. I hope we see more of that actually in the next game. But I applaud that, first of all, for making sense, but second of all, because it adds another insidious layer to the uh, to the Illuminati. Now, I mean, yes, of course, obviously they... Uh, he was a test tube baby, basically, and they were experimenting on him, and then he was released, and his, uh, the scientists who were raising him died, and then there was the whole adoptive parent thing, and blah, 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 and, and of course he was experiment, experimented on against his will in order to help further this, you know, blah, 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 again. The thing that really struck me as Insidious, though, was the way they deal with the byproduct of, the, of, of uh, Darrow Deficiency Syndrome. I can't remember the name of the drug, hypotenuse or hypotenuse or something like that. The drug that people have to take regularly in order to prevent their body from rejecting their augments, okay? This is insidious because, so they have the drug and it's actually relatively easy to produce but they artificially limit its supply so the price goes up. So only the rich or only the the capable or only the connected have the ability to actually regularly have augments because everyone else has to find some source of them artificially creating this underground, which the Illuminati then have control of. Then they uh, basically make it so that another company comes up with their own solution to this drug, which they can then present, which is cheaper, but doesn't undergo as many tests and, of course, this version of the drug is also being pushed by the Illuminati. And this version of the drug is pretty much deliberately designed to be a failure. This is a classic form of control, by the way. And something that a lot of people suspected the Matrix was going to be, as in the actual movie this time. In other words, the best way to control someone is to present an oppressive force and then to also yourself fund the resistance against you. So you have control of the resistance and control of the main government. Very, very classic form. And that's exactly what the Illuminati did with that. And yeah, it's kind of messed up. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the Recycle Military Build later, because I think it's more relevant. So let's talk a little bit about a couple of the characters here. I don't have too much to say about most of the characters here, honestly. So forgive me. Um, I want to talk about... Uh, Zeke, who was the head of the Purity Group. In other words, the completely anti-augmentation group. He was a byproduct of the re- military recycle bill that I mentioned earlier. He was one of those gentlemen who got the free augments, basically, to go back to service. And he blamed those augments for so many of the rather unpleasant things that happened to him after he left service. Completely ignoring the natural you know, difficulty acclimating to society problems that most military people have had since... Uh, forever. <laughs> because for some strange reason, when you spend a lot of time and effort training someone to be a killing machine, suddenly asking them to never do that and interact with normal society, is, it's a different world, right? I don't want to get into that topic right now, though. I bring it up because he is a... There's a lot of logical uh, extreme reaction groups in this thing, and he's one of them, him, him and his group. The idea of, well... These augments may have caused this bad thing, so we'll go way over here with it. And they're just violent and oppressive and horrible. Uh, they are, of course, a minor subnote in the plot, but I bring them up because they lead nicely into Seraph and Taggart. Now, the obvious ap- opposition between the two is so obvious I'm not even going to mention it, but I do bring it up because both Seraph and Taggart are much more human in their opposing viewpoints. Neither one of them is a straw man for any of the given arguments, and neither one of them actually goes to the extreme of one side or the other. Seraph, of course, um, is, is very pro augment but he also acknowledges that there are significant flaws with the process, and he really is untrustworthy of the way it's applied. Taggart himself, of course, is very anti-augment. And yet at the same time, uh, Taggart himself acknowledges the benefits of, of augmentation, at least with proper control. He just believes that there's no proper way to utilize it. Both men also talk extensively about the very what is usually bandied about as the primary theme of all of human revolution. That theme, of course, being transhumanism, which I'll be discussing at last. That's the last thing I'm going to talk about, I swear, when I get to the end. Um, I will say this about them. Both of them have their own books. Which are, which are referenced several times in the game. And one of them is, of course, pro-transhumanism, and the other one is anti-transhumanism. I'm going to discuss what transhumanism means really quickly, because that term gets bandied about a lot as a buzzword, and not many people actually bother to discuss what it means. Transhumanism is the idea that a human being can become more than they are, and whether or not that should happen. In other words, augmentation or genetic tampering or... You know, gaining mutant powers from the X-Men thing, you know, that's all transhumanism. That's all that same concept, the idea that a human being can become more. And again, whether or not that's a good or a bad thing, whether or not that should happen, how that should happen, by what process, you know, that's the very concept of transhumanism. Transhumanism. Some people believe that anything that is external should not be a part of them, that they should not use some kind of external force to change and alter who they are. Now, it is worth noting, and I'm just going to toss out one tiny little bit of my own real-life opinion here, so enjoy the brief window. Uh, For me, I find most of those people to be artificially drawing a line. Now, I know what you're thinking. What do you mean by that? Well, most people, and this is true in real life, who are anti-technology, who are anti-augmentation, who are anti-transhumanism, usually, without even realizing it, draw a line saying, well, this is the line of acceptable augmentation. And I know what you're saying. What do you mean? This right here is human augmentation. It is a very primitive of human augmentation. It is a very basic form of transhumanism. But without these glasses, I would not be a functional person in many ways. I am virtually blind without my glasses. I, can, I cannot make out text at all. I can make out shapes and colors. That's about it. Without my glasses on. Contacts would be a fun, serving the same function. I am using technology to augment myself in order to be able to be more functional. I have a giant metal plate in my left leg that is basically the only thing keeping that bone together. Although by this point, it's possible the bone has healed, I'll admit. But at the very least, when that plate was first put in there, um, you know, keeping... I, I I shouldn't even say that. I'm actually saying that wrong. There's bone here, and there's bone there, and then there's metal in between, you know? I don't really have a normal left leg, is what I'm trying to say. Because of transhumanism. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, that's that's ridiculous. Why are you even bringing it up? But my point is so many people who take that stance ignore the fact that we're already starting this process. We here in real life are already many steps into transhumanism. We're already there. The real question is how much further we're willing to go. Now, I agree a line does need to be cut. But I think too many people are, and I'm just going to say this bluntly, hypocritical in the fact that they say, well, we should be completely pure to ourselves. But being completely pure to ourselves is something that's so ill-defined that it actually makes you wonder if these people literally want to sit in a cave naked (laughs) and hunt for food with their bare hands, because that would be being pure. I know what you're saying. You're taking this to an extreme, but that's my point. They're taking this to an extreme, and they're not considering what that extreme means. What is technology? I'll go ahead and define it for you. Technology is applied human ingenuity. That is technology. A rock can be utilized as technology. A stone, a stick, can be utilized as technology. The idea of rejecting technology on that level is a little bit silly, in my honest opinion. Now, granted, I do think there are limits, but that's exactly my point. That's a level of moderation, not extremism. Let's talk about Darrow. Now, Darrow is interesting to me. (laughs) Because, in many ways, he uh, mirrors the philosophies of Tong from the first game. And for the same reasons. Tong being an skilled, expert computer hacker who wanted to bring the entire system down. And Darrow being someone who basically invented and, and, and started the Augment Revolution. And wants to end it all. Finds them terrible. Now... Uh, what I find interesting is he makes a very excellent point. He says how technology has is, is always been perverted by the powerful in order to be used as a control mechanism for those less fortunate. Now, I find that interesting. He also tends to be one of those get-rid-of-technology, you know, bring bring us down, back to a flat state kind of a person, just like Tong was, again, in the first game. I find that interesting, though, because that is a valid argument in its own right That is one of those very carefully crafted arguments that's designed to distract, at least in my opinion. So here's the thing. Darrow is is a genetic mutant in the same way that Adam is. uh, Except Adam is fully uh, accepting of augments, and Darrow is fully rejecting of them. He cannot be augmented, basically, at all. And it it is left up to the player's decision as to whether or not he genuinely believes his rhetoric that he says, which is possible... It is possible that he genuinely thinks that humanity would be better without his augments. It is possible that he fears the Illuminati and what they could do with this kind of technology. And that is possible. My interpretation is that he is jealous. That because of all that he can't have, no one else should have it. I point to things like the Omega Ranch as a good example of this. Keep in mind, Darrow was one of the big pushers behind the Omega Ranch. This man is not exactly a moral individual, The idea that he is worried about those in power misusing his technology, in my opinion, smacks of an excuse for him to... to, for a scared and angry little boy to hide behind. That what he really wants is to look at everyone else who has all these things he doesn't and to say, no, you don't get that. Now, that is, of course, just my opinion. I'd love to hear your guys' opinion on this, too. That's all I got character-wise. Like I said, not a lot of character stuff to talk about. My last point... I'm not even sure how to approach this last point. I debated not even talking about this. So... My sister and I discussed this last point for about an hour and a half, back and forth. And the problem is, this last point really does deserve better in discussion format. So as as ever, I encourage you guys to leave your thoughts in the comments and whatnot, because uh, I enjoy hearing from the disparate thoughts of people who are not me. But um, So... The last thought is what I call the Star Trek parallel. For those of you not versed in Star Trek, uh, there's a, there was genetic modification to make Superman, basically, in Star Trek's history. It actually happened around the time of Enterprise. Uh, it is referenced in the original series, and it is referenced significantly in Deep Space Nine. And this is a common thread. The thing that keeps being brought up about it, they actually do some decent discussions about it. And they do some really good work with it, especially in Deep Space Nine. The point is, though, human society decided to outlaw genetic modifications, except in severe cases of need of health. That was their solution to it. If you're paying attention, that means Starfleet and the Federation of Planets decided that the restriction method of the three philosophies was the correct one. Prevent it from even being used. Which, of course, as Star Trek proves, did not prevent it from being used. It just made it illegal. It just made it so you have to go to certain places where they do that kind of thing in order to make it happen. Because, you know, prohibition prevented alcohol, right? But this is a very serious topic. This is what I, I one of those uh, no-answer questions. I've talked about this in my Babylon 5 stuff recently. Recent, okay. <laughs> a few months ago, but still relatively recently. Um, the idea that sometimes there's a question that just doesn't actually have a good answer it just has several bad answers and you get to pick which bad answer you go with it's an unsolvable problem in other words so I know what you're saying you're going too far for me so let me pull back because I did this with Sis too I'm like you don't understand this is the end of human society if you go that route and she's like what do you mean I'm hang on. I have a tendency to just leap forward a few steps so let's try this again and I hope I present my, my case here well because you know how terrible I am at this. Let's say human augmentation exists. Now, again, we're already two steps away from this real-life problem right now, in real life. Let's say that you have the ability to change and alter who you are. The uh, anthony I can't remember his last name, Uh, the the trial of Sir Anthony, blah 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 in uh, in in-game is a good example of this. What happened was several people who had augments basically were taking his job. And he couldn't compete, and he wanted the legal right to voluntarily augment himself, and he was granted that legal right after a year of a case battle, a legal battle, okay? That was pretty much the tip of the iceberg there, because the moment that floodgate opened, we had several problems. This boils back to the thing about the recycled military uh, bill that I mentioned earlier. In other words... Once you open Pandora's box, there's no real closing it again. Once we have human augmentation as an available option, you can't really get rid of it again. I mean, there are ways to do that, but logically, you know, logistically speaking, in reality, that's not something that's feasible. So, you... Now, I, I I know I'm still talking too fast. I'm sorry, it's so difficult for me to talk about this because it's like five different branches at once. The So... What you have is you're creating a new standard. Anyone out there see the movie Gattaca? It's a great example of this exact concept. This exact discussion is something that was actually done very well in the movie Gattaca. I recommend it, by the way. It's very slow to start. gets much better, and the, the, the finale is amazing. Um, Gattaca, okay, so the moment it becomes available to improve you, whether it's through genetic tampering or through some kind of ability to bring out a mutant power... Or whether it's through external mechanical augmentation, or as we'll see in the future, nanotechnology augmentation. The moment one of these things becomes available for you to improve who and what you are, you have created a new standard. And it will not happen immediately. It will happen over years, possibly even decades, depending on you know which setting you're working on and what culture and what technology and all that fun stuff. But the moment I can say, you know what, I don't want to wear these anymore. I'm going to get better eyes. Okay. At what point in time do people who rely on their sight have to get augments to stay competitive? At what point do direct steroidal injections into the muscle, muscular tissue this is something that's mentioned in the first ASX game, become mandatory for people in armed combat or in sport competitions? At what point does someone who has the ability to literally pull into the internet in their brain be, you know, it's someone for an analyst or a researcher or a programmer, the ability to literally directly program. It, at what point does that become mandatory? Because the moment you make it available, it will, by its own nature, over time, become more accessible, cheaper, and more widespread, and it will get to the point where there will be more people with those augments, and you're suddenly going to face a rather severe problem. Once it becomes mandatory, what's the next step? And this is where things get really murky. And this is what happened in Gattaca. Uh, In Gattaca in particular, it was basically gene-modifying children at birth. And the severe classism that happened between those who were genetically modified and those who were natural births. And it's a great movie. I really recommend it. Um... (laughs) And so we see that exact same thing here with augments. Remember I mentioned the whole classism argument back in the original Deus Ex. We're going to see this a lot more in Mankind Divided, where, they act, where the whole classism thing basically becomes a thing by deliberate design of the Illuminati. But still, uh, I don't think the Illuminati really needed to push that hard. Because the haves and the have-nots will always argue with each other, right? Uh, let, me, let me rewind a little bit. I'm getting too far ahead of myself. Let me explain some of the ways that, that something can become commonality. We see th- we've seen this in real life a dozen times. I could name, well, I'd have to pull up a list because I don't remember off the top of my head, but I could name, if I pulled up a list, over a dozen technologies that we got out of the military here in real life, right? I'm even talking modern, never mind, you know, going back however many centuries. And what I mean by that is, let's say we come up with a new technology. Here's this new technology. Woo! It first gets applied very carefully, you know, kind of an experimental nature. Usually the groups that have the money and the willingness to push a new technology are the military. That's exactly what happened in Deus Ex. The military decided to push the Recycle Military bill, so you could get what it was effectively free augments in order to make yourself competitive if you signed up and reenlisted and got back into military service. And what we saw was that after that, uh, several other companies sprang up in the wake of the the fact that a market. Now existed for these augments. And you, you can see the logical progression. It went from carefully elite use to common military use to carefully elite civilian use to common civilian use. And that's the usual progression of technology. Right? So that's exactly what happened here. Again, the moment they opened that Pandora's box, augments were a thing. And it was natural it was going to continue to be a thing. And it did naturally continue to be a thing, and became so commonplace to the point where people were thinking about getting augments for basically cosmetic reasons. There's an email that's sent to uh, Taggart, I want to say, about a woman who was thinking about getting augments just to make herself look nicer. No other reason. <laughs> we do know cosmetic surgery's a thing, right? You know? <laughs> just to name it a, a real-life real parallel here. My point, though, is what do you do about this? At what point do you draw the line? At what point, and there's a really messy question here, and I don't want to discuss this one too much, because this gets into stuff I don't like to uh, uh, allow, basically, on my show. But at what point does this affect what a human is? And that is one of the big questions about transhumanism in general. At what point are we no longer human? At what point do we redefine human? At what point do we chop off artificially saying, well, now we are no longer human? Do you consider a mutant from X-Men human, to use one example? Some people would. Some people wouldn't. Do you consider one of these augmented people, like Adam Jensen, human? What happens when the line gets pushed even further to someone like J.C. in the original game? Is he human? He was a complete genetic clone of Adam. Someone who was nanotechnologically augmented from birth, basically. Is he human? What happens when we go further than that? What happens when we have reached a point where we can't even be recognizable as what we were centuries or millennia prior? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? What do we do to prevent this from being abused? What do we do to prevent this from going too far out of control? Is this going to completely reshape the shape, the, 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 the shape of our society, our civilization? Is that a bad thing? You can see the kind of questions that came up here. I'm just kind of tossing this out here sort of rapid fire because, as I said, this is something that's a little more fitted to a discussion, but I wanted to at least bring these topics up because the game did. The game says, at what point do we consider augmentation mandatory? At what point do we consider augmentation having gone too far? At what point do we consider augmentation something that would fundamentally change who you are, not just what you are? I leave these questions open for you to debate on your own time. For now, I think I will go ahead and cut this off, and I will see you guys next week.